This episode of the Model Railway Show is made possible with the support of the National Model Railroad Association. With this year's National Convention in Grand Rapids, Michigan, featuring more than 200 clinics and 70 layouts, including Bruce Chubb's Sunset Valley Railroad, we make it even more fun. Welcome to the Model Railway Show. I'm Trevor Marshall. And I'm Jim Martin. Uh, Jim and I think you'll really enjoy the guests we have lined up for you in this episode. Today we talk layout design with a couple of clever layout planners who are equally comfortable tackling subjects from either side of the Atlantic. From the UK, we have well-known designer of small layouts and author Ian Rice. And from this side of the pond, former Osgale Trains editor Brian Scase. Brian employs time-proven British layout planning principles for making Osgale Trains fit and work in average size basements. He's a clever guy, and it'll be my pleasure to chat with him just a little later in the show. But first, you've read him, now you can hear him. Here's our first guest, Ian Rice. Trevor? It seems that some of us commit to a prototype almost from birth. As hobbyists, these lucky individuals have a laser-like focus on modeling a specific segment of a specific railroad in a narrowly defined period. A famous example of such a modeler is Jack Burgess, whose HO scale Yosemite Valley Railroad is set firmly in August of 1939. We'll have to have Jack on the show at some point to talk about how he maintains this focus, but today we're headed to the other end of the spectrum. I have a friend who says of model trains, it's all good, and I agree. I can find something interesting to model from any prototype in any era set just about anywhere in the world. And every scale, from something that fits in your hand to something you can ride on, has something special going for it. So what does a modeler do if they find that it's all good? My approach has been to build a layout with a single, well-defined theme, then build modules to satisfy my need to work on other themes or in other scales. But as time passes, my interests often change, and I find myself starting over every seven or eight years. And more model trains are added to my cabinet of layouts past. If that sounds like you, you'll want to listen to my guest today who approaches this problem another way. His thoughts on how to scratch all of one's various hobby itches are also useful to modelers with limited space. Ian Rice is a well-known UK layout designer who has written articles and books for hobbyists on both sides of the Atlantic. His book, An Approach to Model Railway Layout Design, Fine Scale in Small Spaces, published many years ago now by Wild Swan, is my go-to guide for innovative ideas. Most recently, Ian has presented his thoughts in a 176-page hardcover called simply Layout Design. You'll find it as part of the Realistic Railway Modeling series from Haynes Publications. Meantime, many North American modelers, myself included, have well-thumbed copies of his books for Comback, including Small, Smart, and Practical Track Plans, Mid-Sized and Manageable Track Plans, and Shelf Layouts for Model Railroaders. Ian has built clever layouts in multiple scales based on North American and British themes. His Proto-87 Rock Bluffs layout featured the main central on a shelf and became a project layout in Model Railroader magazine. Ian joins us to talk about tricks for juggling multiple interests in diverse scales without having to build a tithe barn to house it all. Ian, welcome to the Model Railway Show. Thank you. Let's start with your background. I get the impression from your writing that you enjoy the design exercise, even if you know that the layout you've designed will never be built. What is it that attracts you to the, the process of layout design? I think it's, it's a challenge. It's a, it's a sort of mental game of chess, really. What can you fit in? How can you work a theme into a space? 
And I've always been fascinated by maps. When I should have been learning French verbs at school, I was drawing little maps in my French book. And I've always drawn maps and plans. And I, I get quite a, a buzz out of just creating a plan, even as you say. Sometimes, and you know, it'll never get built. So do you often look at a location and say, I wonder what a railway would look like if it ran through that area? That's a well-known approach here to take a real landscape, a real setting, and put an imaginary railway into it. A lot of famous British layouts have done that. So that's one way of approaching it. We also use the, the concept that Tony Kirster is uh, very fond of, the layout design element. You, you get little arrangements of buildings or track layouts or just combinations of structures and track. And you think that would make a neat subject for a model. I quite often end up combining these, it's what I call composite design, when you take certain rear elements and put them together in a fictional way. So there's a lot of ways of approaching it. In my introduction, I mentioned your recent book, Layout Design, and in it you make a great point of advocating holistic design. What do you mean by that? Well, this is the concept, really, of designing the whole layout, not just the track plan. A lot of people, when they're designing a layout, they, they put a great deal of effort into coming up with a track plan without ever thinking about the other aspects of the model, the visual aspects of it, the practical aspects even. For instance, when you're designing a layout, it pays to think of how the, what the benchwork's going to be like because benchwork systems that support one sort of layout are not very necessarily a good idea for something different. I mean, a good example is Elgoda benchwork, which is great for a permanent layout, but a disaster if you try and move it around very much. The other thing that you like to talk about in holistic design, I guess, is what we'd call the presentation aspects. You spend a lot of time talking about your thoughts about backdrop design. What's important about that for you? Well, there's two things, really. Firstly... Here in Britain, the whole model railway hobby is based on exhibiting. Most layouts in this country are portable, and a good percentage of them are designed to be taken to exhibitions. So presentation and lighting become quite important in that context, in that if you want to show the model off to its best advantage, you've got to design your lighting system and your display system and things like the backdrop into the layout itself, rather than putting it on the walls or anything like that. So that's one aspect of holistic design, really. Backdrops really are, to me, the most vital thing because you can never have enough real estate to model the real world, but you can put a heck of a lot of real world on a backdrop. Absolutely. And I guess while these are ideas that have been tested and proven on exhibition layouts, there's a lot that people who are doing permanent home layouts can take from this as well. Yes, I mean, it's a good trade, that, because what will work on an exhibition layout would enhance a home layout. Where things don't work so well is the other way around. Things you can do on a home layout don't sit so well with an exhibition layout. I mean, exhibition layouts, for instance, have to be designed to come apart very easily into, into manageable size modules, whereas a home layout can be designed on a much larger modular basis. Although I would say that uh, it's still worth designing home layouts on a modular basis because you never know when you're going to have to move. Now, you live in the UK, and it's natural that you have an interest in the railways of the green and pleasant land. But you, you've also designed many layouts based on North American prototypes, and you've even built a couple. What's drawn your interest to railways on this side of the Atlantic? Well, most of my family, for a start, live in Canada and the western US, so uh, I'm, I'm over there pretty frequently. But what really started me on US railroads was back in the very early 50s, my father was working just outside Boston, Salem. And this is at a time when in Britain things were very austere and run down after the war, and he came back with tales of these fabulous trains, the Boston and Maine, and these gleaming diesels. So that started my interest in American railroads, and I've, I've always had an interest in the Boston and Maine from those days. It's not just American prototypes. As you said in your introduction, there's no such thing as a bad railroad subject. I have a Dutch layout, actually, a Dutch Pro 87 layout, which I've had for 15, 20 years now. 
And I'm, I'm dabbling in things like New Zealand narrow gauge. And, you know, if it's nice, I'll have a go at it. I agree entirely. I have a bit of a soft spot for some of the South African railways, too, the two-foot gauge down there. So just have to find a place to model it. That's the problem, right? And we're going to talk about that in a bit. Now, you've done some design work for others, including North American hobbyists, and I've noticed that there's been a growing interest in smaller layouts here in North America. Are you seeing that from people that you design for as well? Well, very much. I mean, I tend to come into the frame when people are looking for small outs because that's obviously my background. But I think there's a number of reasons why the small out is taking off in the States now. One is that as standards go up, I mean, modelling standards have risen dramatically in the last decade. The standard of what you buy over the counter has risen dramatically, so that takes everything else with it, really. And when you've got much higher standards, you've got to invest more time and effort into matching things to a consistent standard. That's one thing. I think houses, even in the States, are getting smaller. Certainly in Canada they are, or the bits of Canada that I know. The other thing which has an effect on this is stability. And and people are, I think, are having to come to grips with the fact that the chances are they're going to have to move perhaps every 10 years or something like that. So the 25-year layout project kind of doesn't fit with that time frame. The British are miles ahead of North Americans in terms of tricks to make smaller layouts seem larger. We've talked about a few of them already, such as the the presentation, the backdrops. You also have a number of innovative designs that maximize modeling fun in small spaces. Now, you've written about many of these in your books and articles, but can you describe a few of the favorites for us? The British school, if you can call it that, of layout design has always depended very heavily on what happens off stage. Whereas in a typical American basement layout, there will be a mainline run. There will be a distance between between yards and other features on the layout. Very few people in Britain have ever have the space to contemplate that. So most British designs rely on offstage trackage, staging, fiddle yards to represent large sections of the railroad. I think that the design of this sort of offstage train handling has got to a very sophisticated level now. And we're getting cassette systems, we're getting stacking systems, vertical, vertically stacking traverses and things like this. It's amazing how effective and how efficient they can be at freeing up space for modelling. These are also opening up spaces that people just haven't considered before. The British have a long tradition of putting model railroads in the most unlikely places. We don't have basements, by and large, so it's a case of either some space in the house, a lot of British model railroads are built in garden sheds, cabins in the garden, and the other traditional layout site here has been the attic, the loft. The problem with that is the modern houses now, that the design of the roof doesn't lend itself to that. One of the things I find interesting when I look at North American designs and then look at British designs is you're much more likely to use a staging area that allows for hands-on of the equipment. Trains are rearranged in a fiddle yard, not set in a static staging yard. You've done some designs where you've used, over here we'd call it a multi-deck layout, but we would expend great space to put in a helix to connect it all together. And in your designs, you'll use a cassette and the person actually lifts the train from deck to deck. Are those some techniques that are maybe applicable to larger North American style layouts? How could some of the railroads we build on this side of the pond benefit from these types of things? I think the train stacker, the vertically moving traverser, is probably the most useful device because it requires very little floor area. I know some of the craftier US hobbyists now are using garage door gear and even garage doors complete 
as a means of providing the vertical lift for, for stacking and also to connect levels. So you can just have a train elevator, which takes the whole train up in its own footprint. As opposed to, I mean, helixes do take up a heck of a lot of space. And in the British context, they're prohibitive because we can't use anything like as tight a radii of curves as, as you guys can. Think about a helix with a six-foot radius, ruling radius. You're talking about something the size of a small or a double garage on its own before you've got anything else. This is because you tend to be running passenger equipment and the couplings and buffers would interfere in a tighter radius. Absolutely. Buffers are the bane of tight curves. I mean, British fine-scale equipment, because it has much less tolerance in terms of the clearances within the models themselves and also between the flanges and the track, will not negotiate a very tight curve. In fact, the finer the scale, the broader the curve you've got to contend with. US equipment in full size is designed to go around much tighter curves than British equipment is, so we've got a handicap right from the start. Now, most of our North American listeners are going to be familiar with your Rock Bluffs layout, but for those who haven't heard of this, can you provide a quick overview of what that layout's about? Rope Bluffs is an American take on a popular British theme. One of the most popular subjects for British layouts is a branch line terminus. It's probably understandable that there are not too many such layouts in the States because, you, by and large, most branch lines in the States tend to go cross-country from one main line to another main line. You don't have so many termini in the middle of nowhere. In Britain, we specialise in termini in the middle of nowhere. So Rope Bluffs was taking that theme, but rendering it in an American context. It was based on the Eastport branch in, in northern Maine, which was a stub-end branch. That's the purpose of it, and it's a typically um, narrow shelf layout, very typical British layout footprint and layout size. So it's marrying a British set of design criteria with an American subject, really. Now, it's only one of your layouts, though. You have several, and you've written about them in various places. If we went into the the rice garden shed, what would we find there? (laughs) In the garden shed right now, rusty tools. I've always gone on the basis, I live in a small house, Most British houses are small, especially the older cottages that I've always inhabited. So I've never had room for a large layout. And the trouble with a very small layout is that it does lapse scope over time. You get fed up with it. So what I've always done is to have, if you like, a layout site, a display space where I can put a layout up. But then I have various candidates I can put in that space. So I have at the moment four model areas complete and one on the go construction-wise which will fit into one or other of my... I've got two possible spaces in, in, in the house I'm in now. So one or other of, them, of the layouts will fit any one of those spaces. So I have an HO American prototype layout, Rope Bluffs, which has now grown a little from when it appeared in uh, Model Railroader. Then I have a Dutch prototype, Proto T7 layout, and I have two British prototype layouts, complete and the third one which is under construction which is a portable diorama for exhibitions now are these all in either ho or four millimeter scale yes they are the only other thing i am dabbling with at the moment is 316 scale s scale new zealand prototype but so far i've only got towards engines and cars i haven't actually decided on whether i'm going to try and build a layout in that scale or not but i find it a very attractive scale and a very attractive prototype my colleague Jim Martin and I are both working in S-Scale now uh, doing North American stuff. And Jim was just recently, uh, well, recently last year, he was down in New Zealand for seven or eight weeks and visited a lot of the New Zealand modelers there, saw a lot of 316 modeling. I wouldn't be surprised if he doesn't start building something in that scale too. It's quite quite attractive. So It's pretty infectious. And I have to say, the quality of, of modeling you find in New Zealand is fantastic. I mean, the, 
those guys are on their own. They've got very little resources in the way of components and equipment, and uh, what they achieve is absolutely incredible. When you're building several layouts instead of just one, obviously your, your focus is going to be divided amongst them. But what are the advantages of that? Is it that if you get bored or frustrated with a project on one, you can put that layout away and turn to something else? Or? Well, that's certainly one consideration, yes. I tend to develop certain themes. So leaving aside the two foreign layouts, my British prototype layouts have always revolved around two sort of general subject areas. The first is East Anglia, which is the eastern side of the Britain um, up against the North Sea coast. That's where I grew up. So uh, that's sort of kind of nostalgia, really. And the second theme is the West Country, where I live now. To me, it's the combination of trains and landscape, which are inspiring. So the landscape themes and the hardware tend to be uh, follow along one from the other, you know? Sure. Any advice for others who find that in model railroading, it's just, it's all good and they are maybe having trouble focusing on one thing? Because it sounds like you have a, that you find it all good as well. And you must have some thoughts on how to deal with that. Well, I think if you're going to go in different directions, the thing to do is to dip a toe in the water. Don't go jumping into some great ambitious project when you're not quite sure whether that's for you, whether the subject of the theme is for you or the scale or the modelling standard indeed. Particularly in Britain, there's a lot of people who come into the various specialist exhibitions and they look at some of the fine scale layouts and they think, oh, yes, I'd like something like that. But they don't realise just what a workload it is to work to exacting standards and go away and dream up some megalomaniac scheme and, and then waste a lot of money and time because they really set themselves an, an unclimbable mountain. If you're going to dabble, dabble modestly, at least until you're certain that's for you. So maybe start with some of the smaller things like build a, a locomotive or a couple of pieces of rolling stock to see if you enjoy working in that size and enjoy working with that theme and then move on to a, a small sort of Ian Rice-style portable layout or something that can be well, set up and put away. That's the point. I mean, if you start with a modest layout, if you design a bit craftily, you can design a layout which becomes, if you like, a modular part of a larger layout in the future. So you can design with two objects in view. Firstly, to make something that stands alone and is self-contained and can, can function on its own, but which has got some scope to expand a rope bluffs is a very good example of that. I mean, even if you look at the original model railroad uh, schematic, there was the layout that actually was built, but the, uh, the, even at that stage, I'd planned a couple of possible ways it could be expanded. And that's something I very often do, even on the smallest layout. I think, how can this fit into a, a larger scheme? If the whole concept takes off, you don't have to waste anything. But the thing that I find saddest about this hobby is how many layouts end up in the dumpsters or get dismantled with a chainsaw. I've always liked to design with an eye to the thing being movable and to be able to function in a number of different ways so that effort isn't wasted, really. I have to admit that I've put a few of them in the dumpster myself, so this is all very good information for me to take in and think about. Listen, Ian, it's been fantastic having you on the show today. Thank you so much for your time, and thanks for joining us on the Model Railway Show to talk about layout design. It's been a great pleasure. I've been speaking with layout designer and author Ian Rice. Thanks, guys. You know, Trevor, I think you and I are often jealous of each other for the people we get to chat with. I'm sorry I wasn't here to say hi to Ian when that interview was recorded. Perhaps next time. You know, it was a real treat to talk to Ian. And as North American lifestyles become more mobile, I think more of us on this side of the Atlantic will be looking to the British scene for layout planning ideas. And I think that's where the things that Ian does is really going to shine. Indeed. I've digested just about everything he's written. Don't forget, the best way to listen to the show is by signing up for a free podcast subscription. 
You can find us on iTunes, podcast.com, and podfeed.net, and you'll never miss an episode. Well, our next guest is a nice fit with Ian Rice as well. In fact, he's even asked us to say hi to Ian. Here's Jim with Brian Skase. There can be some pretty daunting track planning challenges when one's interest lies in larger-scale model railroading. A giant open space in a new home or a barn may make O-scale, for example, a pretty easy choice to make. But what if one switches to a larger scale while still having to utilize the space that formerly and comfortably held an HO or N-scale model railroad? There can be pitfalls for the unwary. Given the space constraints, what works on the smaller scales doesn't always scale up. If we can't change the space, we have to change our thinking. It's time to introduce Brian Scase. Brian's a thinker. He's been an O-scaler since his first all-nation kit 45 years ago, but a variety of moves around the world haven't always given him the space he'd like to feed his O-scale habit. Brian is the former editor of O-scale Trains magazine, and last year that magazine published his five-part series on O-scale layout design. And that's where I was reintroduced to an old friend, the Oval, and made a new acquaintance, the Node, and along with it, Nodal Design. More about them shortly, but first, Brian Scase, welcome to the Model Railway Show. Thanks very much. Now, Brian, you were a pupil of the late John Armstrong, the uh, track planning guru who himself modeled in O-scale. I'm thinking he must have been a fun guy to know. Can you tell us a little bit about that association? He certainly was an interesting man to know. If anyone could get the brainwaves going, he certainly was it. Of course, most people know John by the mantle of the dean of track planners in the United States. So at one point, I lived uh, maybe two streets up from him. We spent many a evening sitting around the table discussing all sorts of problems that are inherent in model railway design. In many ways, a lot of these ideas came from that dining room table. John introduced us to the notion of Gibbons and Druthers as layout planning tools. And if anyone hasn't heard of them, we suggest they check the links to this interview. Generally, if I'm correct here, Brian, Gibbons are the limitations one has to work within, and Druthers are the choices one has to make about design and operation within the constraints imposed by the Gibbons. In other words, making the best use of the space one has. Now, using an average size base, as an example, can you detail the challenges of building an O-scale layout as opposed to an HO or an N-scale pike? Probably the biggest problem as far as the space constraint is embodied in a notion of John's that was called the blob. And that basically is the track form that turns back on itself. If you picture a piece of trackage coming up and sort of in the classic peninsula example, it hangs a hard left goes around the end of the peninsula, turns back on itself, comes back to the original tangent, hangs another hard left. And that particular form of track turning on itself is, especially in O-scale, is a lot larger than most people think that it is going to be when they first draw it on paper. Well, I think you notioned out that it was something in the area of 12 by 20 feet for a moderate radius curve in O-scale? Easily can be. And that 12 by 20 feet will also have to throw in the notion that when you're planning a railway, you've got to have access for yourself to get around this thing. So when I did that calculation, I think it was considering two-foot-wide aisle spaces going around so that you could actually lay, Mm -hmm. maintain the track and also walk with the trains and those sorts of things. But that 12 by 20 feet gives you a notion of what happens if, for instance, you're living in the standard American Cape that has got a basement that might be 40 feet long, 30 feet wide, and you've got to give it half of it up to all sorts of political reasons like the laundry and and those sorts of things. (laughs) So basically, the blob as you call it, that would also encompass the big circular staging tracks that you have at each end of a traditional linear layout in in HO scale or N scale.
let's say, correct? Yeah, that's a classic form. And, of course, you've got to remember that it now gets wider the more tracks that you put around it. That calculation that we were talking about earlier really is for a single track. Now, all of a sudden, if you'd like to put four or five in a reversing staging yard, of course, it gets much wider. Indeed. And you mentioned vertical constraints. The idea of a double-deck layout in O-scale doesn't really work too well either because of the amount of distance it takes to clear itself. Yeah, if you're speaking about N-scale, of course, you know, the vertical rise is not nearly so much as you would need to get an O. And gradient in and of itself is not scale dependent. 2% is 2%, whether it's 12 inches of the foot or 1 to 160. But the distance you have to travel up that grade grows quite a bit the higher that you need to get to put a track over top of itself, which is the classic case of why one has grades in the first place, yeah. other than for just visual effect. O-scale trains are taller than N-scale trains, right? Quite a bit, yeah. yes. And so, for instance, you would at 2%, and this is sort of scratch off the top of my head again, you're going to have to travel better than 20 feet to get enough rise to get just a 4-inch railhead to underpinnings clearance to put a train through. And again, that 20 feet in the basement space that we've been talking about just now, as an example, is quite a bit of distance that you have to cover. So what I'm hearing you leading up to here, Brian, is that the big linear designs that we see in the track planning magazines for N-scale or for HO, a linear design being, say, a, a big central uh, division yard with hidden staging on each end. It's not going to really work in O-scale unless you've got a barn or something like that, right? Or you're extremely clever, one of the two. And this is not necessarily a limitation that's just on the larger scales. If you picture a guy that's an H or who's got a spare bedroom to work with, he's under somewhat of the same constraint. And aren't model railroaders notorious for trying to cram more than they should into a space? Extremely. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now this brings us up to our opening lines here. That You suggest that ovals or nodes, or a combination of the two are the best answer for O-scalers that have typical real estate. Can we start with a nodal design? I hadn't heard the word nodal design until I read your article. What is that? Well, in the most basic of terms, let's step back a little bit and look at the notion of form versus function. Track planning for most people has taken the form of strangely enough, form. We go back all the way to Ellison and the notion of model railways are supposed to be some form of theater, which is all great. When we're talking about nodal design, what we're really talking about more is function and then what form it may take follows. The lesson really comes over from the engineering world, especially system engineering. And maybe the best example to describe the school of thought would be, at least in this day and age, look at a computer network where you have a server, and that's what we call a central node. And then you've got the clients, the various computers that are on the desks, and that's what we would call the destination nodes. And the fun thing about it is a railroad, real or model, is also a system. So system engineering thought processes work well here. The other nice thing about this is it breaks down the design process itself, which is very daunting to most people, down to very discrete chunks, which makes it an easier problem to solve because you can solve it for one chunk at a time. And so there's basically two rules to this and only two, which is nice. The first one with respect to that central node, the server, is that it's going to have the capacity to feed all the clients. In our case, we're talking about car capacity. We're talking about a switching yard, are we? Just for the sake of our discussion today, let's just take the form of that division point yard that we are going to now freely steal from linear design. That's probably the most common central node form. 
The other thing to bear in mind is that we're looking at the part of the traffic stream of a real railroad that is, rather than in linear design, the main line part where traffic is coming from hidden staging west and coming in to be reclassified in the division point yard, and then off it goes to hidden staging east, and that main line flow. Instead, what we're seizing on now is the terminal functions that come from that division point mm-hmm. yard, yeah. as an example again. If I may, at the risk of oversimplifying this, the central node is a switching yard with enough capacity to feed other sort of small industries that radiate out from this, like the spokes from a wheel, right? So this gives you a well, lot the of... The spokes from a wheel actually is a very good analogy. Yeah. And um, this gives you a lot of flexibility in track planning because you can stick little yards in spaces that you might not have room for anything else in O scale, correct? Right. Yeah. And the fun part about this then becomes once you've designed that central node so that it has the capacity, that's its function. Each of the destinations are best designed as discrete single scene switching layouts onto themselves, which is an apple that's been actually best polished in Britain. Yes. That destination, whether it's an industrial area or a mine head or a breaker or any of those sorts of forms, so long as it functions as a single scene switcher, mm-hmm. complete with space for incoming traffic to stand, a runaround track or a passing loop, depending on what side of the Atlantic you're listening to this from, and then the doors where the pickups right now are standing, so long as you can operate this thing discreetly as a single scene switcher, it will work. That second rule that we were talking about. Mm-hmm. This sounds very brilliant, Brian, because it provides operation in a modest space for O-scalers, and uh, can support possibly several operators at a time if they each want to work these industries, as, uh, say, switching industries in their own right. Can we move on to the oval? Tell us about the virtues of the much maligned oval. It's kind of the reverse of the nodes, because the nodes are all about operation. The oval is all about letting the trains rip for the rail fan part of the model railroader, correct? Yeah. If one has been careful and honest about their druthers when they were thinking through that givens and druthers exercise, one of the most important ones is what really does appeal to you, because this thing that you build obviously has got to appeal to you. And there's a rail fan versus employee druther that I throw in. And you decide where on that scale you really are. And most people will discover that they're actually have got a foot in both camps. If you can't turn a blob, the options are a little bit limited when it comes to just being able to sit down with a controller in one hand and a drink in the other and watching what you've built glide by. Continuous running is something I design in every railroad that I build for myself because I do like to do that. And the oval is oftentimes the only form that you really can choose in the larger scales that are going to fit in that space. So now the next thing is once we've surrendered ourselves to that inevitability, then the important part becomes how do we disguise this thing such that it just doesn't look like the bare plywood three tracks running around the periphery of the basement, which is sort of the stereotype. That really now steps into form much more than function. There's lots of ways to disguise that. That's where the stage dressing comes in. Then, of course, you can have the fun of combining the two. Well, that's what intrigued me. Your recent series on O-scale trains, I really was intrigued by how you married the nodal and the oval together as separate unconnected entities in the same layout space. How does that work? That worked out of sheer absolute terror and desperation on my part because I really didn't have that 20-odd feet to climb that we talked of earlier. And so what I did was I interwove a 
you could call it a parade route maybe, so that the more mainline models that I build, I can see run. Mm -hmm. And it was just interwoven in and amongst the trees of the nodal design, which of course satisfies the employee driver in me too. The nice thing about that is that the two actually can stand discreetly. They can be two separate railroads operating in close proximity, so you get to have your cake and eat it too. Absolutely. And I'm all for eating my cake. (laughs) Yeah, my waistline will attest to the fact that I am as well. Well, uh, one last question here, Brian. Do you think people who are used to the mainstream conventions of layout planning understand the concepts you're putting forth here? I've actually, in many quarters, run into, well, I guess the first the first answer is in the large scales where people actually know desperation up front and personally, they're very quick to grasp this. Out in the more mainstream where linear design has almost taken on the mantle of holy writ for the last 60 years, there's some resistance. Probably one of the most realistic ones is that someone will say, well, wait a minute, there's nothing new here. And that statement's true. As far as the forms, there is nothing new here. How you mingle those forms for the function, though, is something that people don't necessarily think about because over this long period of time, so scripted in looking at linear design as being the goal of model railway design. Once you've turned around and been gored by the bull, then you try and think of something else to wave around other than red, and that's what we're doing here. <laughs> okay. Well, Brian, this has been an illuminating conversation. You've put a lot of thought into this. And again, we will direct people to your article because it'll answer a lot of questions I didn't have time to ask here. But thanks for reintroducing me to my old friend, the Oval, and also to Nodes. This sounds like a, a space saver for those who are space-constrained in larger scales. So thanks for being with us here on the Model Railway Show today. Uh, you're entirely welcome. It's been fun. Brian Scase is a track planner and a former editor of O-Scale Trains magazine. Well, thanks, Jim, and thanks to Brian. That's uh, really interesting. I hear that he's actually switching from uh, American O-Scale to British O-Scale. Yeah, I don't know how many North American models do that, but Brian is comfortable with British subjects. He's uh, spent some years over there, so he's still in O-Scale, but he's going from quarter inch to the foot to seven millimeters, which I guess is another way of saying those 143rd vehicles will just look a little better on uh, his new O-Scale layout. That's probably why he did it. Actually, being both Canadian modelers, we run into a lot of people in southern Ontario who model in British show scale. I'm thinking Brian Fail and Bruce Wilson. Indeed, having spent time over there, I could easily fall into the British outline uh, modeling because I'm quite fascinated with it. The locomotives are painted in such pretty colors. They're not all black. You get crimson red and green and all sorts of things. It's more like a A kaleidoscope. A kaleidoscope. Like your shirt. Like my shirt. Yes, (laughs) we'll talk about the shirt a little later, but right now it's time to bring this episode to a close. And we're taking the summer off. After a year and a half of fun but pretty steady work jim and i are going to take a three-month break right trevor it's the deck chair some cold cider and model train magazines for me i trust you'll find a similarly satisfying way to waste time well i certainly hope to run my 16 millimeter live steam engines work my two border collies on sheep and enjoy some excellent british beer the dogs love it too what a waste no no not for them jim and i wish you a fun summer and we also wish a fun summer to our extraordinary team fellow modeling buddy and eskill workshop cohort chris abbott for his technical expertise, Otto Vondrack, who carves out time from Carson's publications to handle our web design, and another guy who's been with us from the start, David Woodhead. Dave wrote and performed our catchy theme song, Clackety, plus the stingers we use at the end of each show. Be sure to
sure to visit Dave's website where you can fully appreciate his musical and modeling talent and buy some of his CDs. Speaking of websites, we also want to thank John Pastana, David Cox, and the rest of the crew at trainlife.com for archiving our older shows. Thanks to them, newcomers to our show can tune into each show from the very beginning. A great summer to you all. For Trevor Marshall, I'm Jim Martin. We'll be back in September on the Model Railway Show. From the UK, we have well-known small layout designer and author Ian Rice. He's actually a full-sized author. (laughs) From the UK, we have well-known layout designer and author Ian Rice. He's actually gnome size. (laughs) That was sabotage. That was sheer sabotage, wasn't it?